You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 72 of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And on this week's show, we have Dave Forrester, long-term assistant of the Newcastle Eagles who stepped down last week after over 10 years on the sidelines with Fab Flournoy who obviously uh, ended up leaving the Eagles to jump, make the jump to the NBA uh, the season before last, well just before the season that's just gone um, and David's obviously made the decision to step down, he said that his decision was always to step down uh, when, when Fab went but he'd recruited the, the the team that played last season so he wanted to stick out uh, alongside Ian McLeod and uh, yeah, last week, week before last he announced that he would be stepping away from the sidelines. Dave uh, has a unique perspective on the game, his story is kind of crazy actually going from a fan to ending up as an assistant coach um, with the club but not only that, he has been involved with the game at almost every level, he's a board member of the Eagles Community Foundation um, he is a trained uh, referee. Uh, he runs a CVL. Um, he obviously helps with Eagles recruiting, has been an assistant coach. Um, so has a very unique insight into not just uh, on the court, but off the court, the behind the scenes things, the general state of the game of British basketball, which is obviously something that I am incredibly passionate about and something I love talking about. And so me and him have had many, many conversations over the years. And this was an opportunity to get into that in more detail. Before we do get into this week's show, uh, please take two seconds to check out our Patreon account, P-A-T-R-E eon.com forward slash h-o-o-p-s-f-i-x there you can start to give us a monthly contribution of as much or as little as you would like to help us do the work that we're doing to help try and try and grow this british basketball media landscape so please go and check it out uh, patreon.com forward slash hoops fix have a listen to the show uh, as always let me know what you think you can drop me an email if you prefer it personal uh, sam at hoopsfix.com or you can hit me up on every single social media platform at hoopsfix and if you're watching on youtube by all means uh, leave a comment below and let me know your thoughts let's get some discussion going anyway here is this week's show with me and Dave Forrester. Dave, welcome to the show. Hi, Sam. So, uh, obviously, big news last week. Uh, was it was it last week? Week before last? In the last, in the last fortnight, anyway. Um, you're obviously stepping stepping away from the sidelines uh, with the Eagles. So, I think that's the obvious place to start. You know, you've done a done a decade ish, uh, predominantly with Fab. Um, kind of talk about that decision and and why you've made that decision to. Uh, to stop being the assistant coach of the Eagles? Not quite sure how big news it was, but uh, it's it's news up here, I think, to a certain degree. Um, in reality, everything has its, has its span, has its lifespan. And um, when I started, we didn't know how long it was going to be for. It was kind of a very much a, a see how you get on and see how it works and see if it can be balanced around family life, etc., uh, and then it kind of took on a life of its own, uh, you know, in the way that we um, were able to fit our lives around it. Um, ended up with him living upstairs in the house. So the whole thing kind of moved on to the point whereby we were almost indivisible for a period of time. Uh, and um, I always, I think, took the view that when he stopped, that I would stop. Because I, I, I'm always been slightly uneasy with the concept of, as it were, a volunteer assistant coach in the, in the BBL. I don't really think, you know, ultimately my profession isn't as a basketball coach. And I was always very conscious of the fact that um, I didn't want to get in the way of other people. You know, it's a big thing in this country about developing people and developing people within the sport and creating an economy from the sport. And I didn't want to do that. 
But the reality of the situation was with Fab that because he was a player coach, it was slightly different to it to being a normal assistant. It kind of he there was only certain things he could do, and there were certain things um, he needed to be done. And kind of our over, we didn't overlap. You know, we kind of dovetailed. So what he didn't really do, I did. And um, it got to the point whereby, uh, you know, we, we kind of understood what he, I knew what he was thinking when he was on the court. And that was a very valuable thing. And to the point whereby it wouldn't have been fair on him, I think, for me at that point to have walked away with somebody else. Now, we brought Ian in halfway through, I think, probably 2014. And that was a deliberate effort you know, to say, look, look, we have to have a pathway here as well. It can't just be about, you know, a, a 41-year-old player coach playing all the minutes with a lawyer on the sideline telling them what to do. It really, um, that, that's not the way we want to, 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 to run a professional franchise. Uh, and so that kind of worked that way. But um, when Ian came to the fore, when, when obviously when Fab left, you know, a week before the season when, when, when Toronto offered him, and we'd already recruited that team. Um, I didn't feel I could walk away at that point. I thought that would have been extraordinarily unfair. Um, Mac was happy for me to be there to, 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 to kind of guide him along, as it were. Um, although he didn't really need that much guidance, to be fair, because he took to it like a duck to water. Um, but um, the stuff that I was doing with for Fab, Ian doesn't need me to do, because Ian's, Ian's perfectly capable of, of doing it. And he's a, he's a head coach, not a player head coach. So it seemed that it seemed to me it was a natural time for him to build his team and his organisation. And every head coach has to have you know control over everything that they want, and we have to have um, more opportunities for young coaches in this country. And on top of that, we'd won. So we'd won. We'd won. We'd won. We'd won 14 trophies in 10 years. We'd been at the top three for, for the entire period of time that I'd been there. Um, and there's only so many times you can climb a mountain. There's only so many times you can drive to Plymouth. Um, and get back at three o'clock in the morning and be at court, be at work at nine o'clock the next morning, you know. Uh, and so it, it it just it was just time. So that's a long answer to a short question, but it was uh, just uh, yeah, that's perfect. It, you kind of alluded to there. So, you, so your day job is a, a criminal defence lawyer. Is that the the official yeah. title? Yeah, magistrate criminal defence lawyer. Yeah. And your your story is obviously quite remarkable because you kind of started out as a as a as a fan of the Eagles, and then somehow you know decades later, years later, you're 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 on the sidelines on the bench. Can you kind of uh, discuss that journey? Like, I would I'd love to hear sort of your background. Um, I guess I guess starting with like how how you actually first started getting involved with basketball, uh, yeah. and then sort of the journey through to getting on the bench with the, with the Eagles. Yeah, I'll try and give you the abridged version because otherwise it could take a while. I was fortunate because I grew up in, a, in what was in effect in the 1980s in a basketball town. Gateshead was a basketball town. Um, and I say that because our, um, the, the, the senior school I went to had won the national championships a few years beforehand. Um, had a guy called Keith Ramsey who went to play for Manchester Giants playing um, for them. We had a teacher um, who was you know, kind of a mini Jimmy Rogers of Gateshead. Um, who just passed away last year, and everybody in the whole of the Northeast basketball scene was at his funeral. Man called John Brabham. Uh, we had a lovely kind of wooden floor gym in the school, and we also had a national league team based at the Leisure Centre, which was basically a you know a five-minute bus ride from where I lived. You know, it was just three stops on the bus, and because we had a national league team and at one point a Carlsberg league team um, for a couple of seasons, um, the council employed some of the local players some of the players 
to coach as well as to play. It's the same model in many ways as some areas now. So from the age of about nine, my first coach on a Thursday night at the Leisure Centre was Curtis Xavier, um, who I think you, you may well even have interviewed. And then Curtis did about three. Yeah, that was interesting. He had an interesting way of coaching nine-year-olds. <laughs> we, did, we did a lot of running um, and, and sitting on the wall and that type of stuff. And then three years later, um, the, the, the Gates had signed a young kid called from Birmingham called Paul Douglas. Dougie. Uh, yeah, Dougie. Everybody knows Dougie. So Dougie came up uh, and he he became the basketball development officer. So for the age of like about 12 to 15 or 16, every session was with Dougie. And so we, so we get him some proper coaching. And he kind of ran a little, took us around on the metro, on the on the local metro system to find games and that type of stuff. And uh, we had some decent players come out of that, but nothing organised like it is now. The National League wasn't organised like it was now. So there were players like John Paul Heron and, and, and Mark Miller, who ended up on the Eagles bench, Adam Barnes and people like that, um, who came through the system, came through, in effect, Dougie's work. And then Gary Smith Chicken came up as well, and he was here for a couple of years, and so involved with him. So that kind of got me into the sport, and I used to watch watch the, the games religiously. I was always a, um, very keen on numbers as a kid, very analytical. So the sport, the competition, and the numbers, and the fact it was kind of a foreign sport, and, and had, it was something to understand, that really attracted us. And so I got into this, played a bit. wasn't a great player, but it was kind of quite a heavy point guard. I'm never going to be good enough to make anything of myself in, in the sport. Not big enough, not athletic enough. Um, couldn't use my left hand or all that stuff. Um, went to co- so at 18, went to college, went to the University of Durham. Um, again, stayed in the northeast. Um, played for the, the university team there, but very different to what it is now. You know, you don't get the sports side. Very different. It was like a local league to the point whereby each the, the cap, the, the coach of the team each year was the kid who was most interested the last year. So I was most interested in the second year, so they made me the player coach in the third year. Uh, that was the level of selection. Then you turn up at Freshers Trials and you desperately hope there's a couple of Americans come over as grad students who can, who can score 50 a game for you. So that kind of got, so got into that. Um, played, as I was playing football for the university, goalkeeper for the university first team and, and basketball as well. So it was quite didn't do much law. And then after three years at Durham, went to Northumbria, for, which is a legal practice course, which you have to do to become a lawyer. And um, at Northumbria, one of the um, people on the basketball team and one of the people studying there was Paul Blake. So um, Paul, and, he, and that team was coached by Billy Sprague, who was the coach, at, the assistant coach at the Eagles. So this is probably 95, 96, just before Paul got involved with running the sporting club in John Hall. Um, so I met Paul and you know, got on all right with him there and you know, we just, you know, student basketball lifestyle, etc. cetera, get to know, know each other. And then finished university, went off to work, uh, um, actually spent some time in the summers coaching football in America um, because that was my, my, that's kind of my other, my other sport, uh, my other passion. And um, came back, went to work and, and kind of played a little bit of local league. Um, but a couple, of years, a couple of years later, we formed a, a local league team out of Eagles fans at that point, we were very the firm sponsored the Eagles, so we had courtside seats. I worked for my dad's office, my dad's firm, so my dad's firm sponsored the Eagles. Um, so it was a family firm. Uh, having set up a local league team called the Zorbers, um, which was just basically a bunch of Eagles fans, who, hadn't, who most of whom had either never played or hadn't played for donkey's years. 
became the player coach, tried to work out how to run the 12-man rotation in local league to make sure everybody was happy. Um, Travelled around, um, still very, very interested in the BBL because basketball is my sport. I was, you know, basically mid-20s, single, so that was one of the way I spent my time. Um, used to travel around to games with Paul Nielsen, who you'll know from um, various different areas, yeah. women's basketball now, but, but he, Paul was also uh, played with the Zorbers. Um, travelled around with the Eagles for that. We did some little kind of social media videos at the time. We... Um, uh, we did Eagles Web Radio. Web, Web Radio came on, so we actually broadcast some of the games on kind of dial-up connections from Bletchley Leisure Centre or, 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 or John Sanford Centre and desperately, you know, um, with some kit which looks like it came out of the arc, got involved that way. And then probably, you know, also commented quite regularly on what's Bev. Sometimes Fab liked it, sometimes he didn't. Um... And then, Are you confirming that Fab reads what's web, what's Bev? He did for a while, until he worked out. <laughs> he did at the young at a younger age. When, when, yes, uh, I remember they, they won a game at Leicester by about twenty. And I'd been down there as a fad, and I thought he didn't. I thought he made a few mistakes in the coaching, and that put something on the website. And uh, I knew Billy Billy Sprague quite well, and Billy came to us. I think and said, "Yeah, Fab saw this. He wasn't very happy." He's like, "This decision." Um, so that, so that kind of happened, and um, Paul um, probably after the 2006 season, after the clean sweep season with TJ and Jeremy, I was talking to Paul a little bit more, and he asked me to kind of help out a little bit with the scouting because that was kind of my niche, you know, numbers, um, knowledge—not to say knowledge, but information as to players stored. That's kind of what I've got stored in my head. You know, good recollection of dates and times and that type of stuff, and ability to com- compare players across the pond. It wasn't all done on video then, so it was, not, it was a bit, bit harder. And I remember the first time he introduced me to Fab, and I remember Fab looking at me extraordinarily suspiciously, um, thinking, oh, "He's just another English guy who shouts from the sidelines, doesn't know what the hell he's talking about." He might be right. Um, and Paul showed me a video, or Paul had some videos in of players, and he asked me about one guy. What do you think of this guy, Dave? In fact, was there. And to be honest, he wasn't up to much. Uh, he was shooting, he was making a lot of threes on his highlight video, but he was like six foot six and being guarded by someone who was seven foot one, which basically means that he's not being guarded. Um, so he clearly wasn't a guy who regularly shot the ball. I said, I said to Paul, no. At which point, Fab looked at me like, yeah, right, he gets me, he understands. <laughs> I don't want him. So at that point we kind of got on a bit better. We we kind of started talking a little bit about the game. Talk about and I used to talk to him about games after they'd happened. Um, on the, I think they got beat by Milton Keynes in the 2008 Cup final, and it still hurts about that game because they, they shouldn't have lost that game. Um, it was there at the time because I wasn't on the bench, um, and I, I was there in Birmingham with my wife, and it was my second wedding anniversary because my wedding anniversary is January the 14th which is always the time of the BBL Cup final it was always the weekend of the BBL Cup final and they lost and I think um, he rang us up in the, rang us up in the hotel at midnight having lost that game um, just to vent and then I, came, I vented back at him and I think it was about 2 o'clock in the morning and the wife is wondering what the heck is going on I was going to say I bet you know, you're well happy with that yeah absolutely she survived it happily I survived it happily so that happened, and then just moving brief, moving on. Eventually, I think in the middle of 
I started recruiting some players for him. We, we got, um, you know, people. I, I used to go through the emails basically because he wasn't particularly a big email person, and, and I quite enjoyed it trying to find, you know, the, the challenge of trying to find a player. And so we got an email. I remember in 2008 with a from an agent with about 30 players on, and they mentioned this guy Tafari Tony at the bottom um, without any mention, and um, in brackets put uh, mother born in England. So I kind of went on to, oh, born in England, okay, so I started learning about passport laws and stuff like that. And, um, you know, three months later, the day before the season, Tap had a passport and he was playing for Newcastle. And um, that, from that moment on, I kind of, the, the, the thrill of that success of finding a player and, and getting someone who's going to help the team win and becoming involved, it kind of goes beyond what, what it is being a fan, you know. Um, and then a year and a half later, Billy had to step down. And when Billy stepped down, I said, basically, I, I said to Fab that there was no realistic way I could keep telling him what he'd done wrong after the game if I wasn't willing to sit next to him during the game and try and help him. And he accepted that. Um, and and, um, and we just kind of moved on from there. So that, um, that was the 2009-2010 season you actually moved to the bench, right? right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, mid-season. Mid- mid- game at Guildford just before Christmas. Right, so and then three Three weeks later, he got himself thrown out for throwing a clipboard across the court at Worthing. And four weeks later, I was the head coach of a passive BPL basketball team at London Capital, which was an interesting place to play. You've probably been um, with him sitting in the crowd, and there was no crowd at London Capital, so he was the crowd, literally about 10 feet away from the court. Um, as I'm trying to tell Leonard Stewart and Joe Chapman and, and, and you know, and... and um, Bridgie and all these guys who, who, know, who are just ultra experienced winners. I'm trying to figure out, you know, what am I meant to say? How is this meant to work? It was nonsense. It was, you know, it wasn't the way things should be um, in a perfect functioning system. But it also ended up being something that was I ended up being quite good at. Uh, and he, and when you're working with a player coach. Um, the need for anything, the, 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 the biggest requirement and the biggest fundamental significant factor for me was to be totally on his wavelength. You know, I couldn't at any point um, undermine him. I couldn't at any point, we couldn't show any differences in our opinions between to the players. There couldn't be any cracks there. We had to be as one. And um, I think I, I I kind of understand that, that a little bit probably because of my legal background and what happens when you know we get instructions from a client and that's privileged and you have to work on the basis of sometimes not what you think but what you're being told your client thinks you know and you have to kind of subsume yourself to that and um, we kind of ended up in a situation whereby he would allow me to do the things that would take up too much of his energy for when he was playing and coaching. So he would be getting, the, he would get the team ready. He would have everybody ready. He'd have the game plan ready and all of that stuff. Um, but if there was too much going on in the game in relation to other players, it's such an impossible job to do being a player coach in reality that there was a danger that it would just overload him. So my job was to see, was to make sure he wasn't being overloaded and take off as much as I could with his, with his consent, obviously, to assist him on the way. Did you 
did you ever find it intimidating, you know, being in those situations and on, on, on like when you're, you know, like you said, speaking to these players with, with a wealth of experience and, you know, did you ever feel insecure maybe about your own background and that you haven't been coaching for 15, 20 years and now you're on the sidelines? Like, did that cause any issues with regards to sort of gaining the respect of the players maybe? Um, I think I'm quite sure, I, I've never asked them, but I'm quite sure at the beginning they, they, um, the, the, their eyebrows were slightly raised. Um, when I came in, but even before I was, I came part of the group. I was attending a few practices because they would practice at seven o'clock in the morning, and I would. He invited me across to watch the practices, uh, and I started giving scouting reports for them. Um, so what players primarily want is information, and they like, and, and the information I was giving them was helping. I think they appreciated was helping them win. You know, so I was able to say, look, Tony Dorsey wants to go to dribble to his right and spin back to his left and shoot a fadeaway. Um, and you need, we need to, to defend that. We need to stand on his right hand and make him shoot, shoot that shot. You know, you know, you can't be giving James Jones or Andy Thompson can't be getting open threes. That's the most important function of this. And there wasn't as much of that going on in the game at, the, at that time. It's, it's massively different now because of the technology involved. But the, you know, we didn't have much as much video at that time. The one thing I kind of had the benefit of was a, a relatively photographic memory in relation to players that I'd seen and, and, and assessed and, and done that. And so I was able to offer that. I think that probably bought me a little bit of credibility with them. And then secondly, it, you know, the Eagles was very much Fab's way or the Fab's way or um, no ones. So you, as Fab put it, you're either on the bus or you're off the bus. And so when he, I think the fact that he put he was happy that I was on the bus again gives you that gives us that credibility. Yeah. And the final thing I think, Sam, I don't think I was ever intimidated, no, because. You know, when you do the job I do, and you you have to, I have to start go down to prisons, go down to police cells, and see people who can be aggressive, who can be obnoxious, who can be um, angry, who can be damaged. Uh, all I have to do is to deal with them rationally and reasonably and logically. So you carry, I carry that through in relation to um, what's going. On. I mean, that, that trip down to the London, the London Capitals, where I knew I was going to be the head coach. I did spend about four hours trying to work out what the hell I was going to say in the locker room beforehand. It's the team that hasn't. We're playing against a team that hasn't won all season, um, and um, you know we've got a team full of vets, you know who know exactly what they're going to have to do. Uh, and in the 20 minutes before the lock, 20 minutes before the game, to leave. And so the routine is the coach has to say something. Well, what the hell am I going to say? I can't. I, I think I just. I think it was some very. It was some hackneyed old variant version of win one for five or some shit like that. Oh, sorry about me. Uh, or something like that, you know. Yeah. And then just because because what I, what he taught me and what you learn very quickly being around pro players and I didn't know at the time is that if you've got nothing to say, you say nothing. You know, it's very much like you know if you've got nothing to add, you know they they, they will see that it's their jobs, it's their livelihoods. They put themselves on the line on on the, on the line night after night against somebody else who might want to take their job. If they think that they're, they're getting some rubbish talked at them. They're gonna. They're not gonna listen to you ever again. Yeah. Yeah. So if you don't know what to say, you just don't say anything. Um, and in certain times, the environment and the, the culture that he cultivated within the team was very much one of personal responsibility. Any event, you know, you do your job, you follow our rules, and we will be good. And basically, if you do your job, you follow our rules, and if we lose, it's our fault. It's not the players' fault. Uh, and, and that helped as well because he had. He was incredibly strong on accountability of players. When you talk, no, yeah, so not, 
Well, yeah. When you talk about your relationship with with Fab, um, am I right in thinking you actually swore him as a British citizen? Swore him in as a British citizen, right? That was sort of like the the early days, and then of course you went on to do all this stuff with him. Can you kind of talk to talk to that the the beginning and then uh, the evolution of your relationship over the years? Yeah, well, I mean, the British citizen thing was just because I was a lawyer and Paul knew I wouldn't charge him. <laughs> Um, so he grabbed me. It was the season that Fab, the first season Fab was at Newcastle with Tony G. Fab was injured all season, got misdiagnosed with his knee. And so I'd never really, I didn't really know him, I hadn't seen anything of him. He, you know, I, I remembered him as a guy from Sheffield who he couldn't really shoot but play defence, to be honest. That was it. And I was waiting to see what he would bring to the Eagles, but he never played. And then probably in about the May or, May or, March, May or April, April or March of that year, Paul grabbed his from courtside at a game and said, can you just sign this oath for him? Or can you, I had to bring a Bible along. We went behind the curtain at the back of the arena where the arena was curtained off, said, hello, I'm Fab. He said, I'm Dave, pleased to meet you. Right, put you, hold the Bible and say this, say these words after me. So he did that, swore it in, there you go, he's a British citizen. Um, then, and Tony left to go to Birmingham, and I remember that summer there was an issue in the papers as to whether or not, you know, who we, in the local papers up here, um, as to whether we would get a player coach, whether, who, who would be the new coach. And there was a choice between Fab and Scants was, was what was being pushed in the papers. And I remember thinking, oh, can't be having a player coach. They never work. I hope he gets Scants. <laughs> and um, I don't think I've ever told Fab this. Um, and uh, Paul, uh, Paul was Paul obviously seen Fab around and he knew what he was. So um, so then, yeah, so that I was basically a radio broadcaster and a fan and, and used to, Occasionally heckle some of the opponent opposition players like Yorick and Skousen and people like that, and, and having a good, just basically enjoying it um, until we got to that point whereby we kind of started talking more, which culminated in the two hours on the night of the Milton Keynes defeat at the win anniversary, and then eventually we ended up travelling around the country together. Um, he um, he moved out. We had a flat in Newcastle, and he wanted to move out, and we were actually selling our house and but we sorry moving to a new house but we hadn't been able to sell our house yet so we moved out and I said basically why don't you just go and live in our old house and you can pay you know you'd be my tenant um so he did that for about 18 months and then the house this was about 2010 2011 and then then we sold it and then and the house that we moved into has a granny flat upstairs and he really didn't want to go back to his flat in the centre of Newcastle for some reason. I have no idea. He quite liked being out the way in Gates. It's a bit further out of the way, a bit, a bit less um, going on. Uh, and my wife had a friend who'd been living upstairs, but she moved back home. And um, so we said, well, you may as well come and move upstairs. Um, so he did. And he was a good, useful babysitter at regular times. And basketball players keep ridiculous times. You know, their body clocks, their foot, you know, they're practising 8 o'clock at night as they work or 10 o'clock. So... The um, you know the, he might not be in, you know ready to go to sleep at three, two or three o'clock in the morning, so he'd always be ready to do a midnight run if we hadn't got any milk for the baby or something like that. You know it was great uh, having a kind of a compliant tenant upstairs. Um, and the, the advantage of that was that you know we got to talk. We you know, he, you know he kept himself to himself at times. So there's other times where we just talk about the game, talk about the team, and you're constantly kind of. Um, discussing ways of getting better and things that we need to do, and which how the how the guys are, which players are feeling a bit down on themselves, what you know, what we think about the other teams in the league. You know, it's a long way back from you know Copper Box to Newcastle on the bus, 
And there's, no, there's only so many things you can talk to a, 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 a basketball-obsessed individual about. <laughs> it's basketball. So it, 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 that was probably, that carried over to the court, it carried over to what people said on, on the game night, you know. What, what would you say are the biggest things that you learned from, uh, you know, working so closely with Fab over, over the best part of a decade? Uh, oh, it, the biggest things were the early things, the stuff that I was absolutely totally unaware of when I got there. I didn't understand. I had this kind of idea in my head that players were kind of what they were, that they were robots, that they would just turn up, they would do their job. If they were better than the other guy, they would win. If they were worse than the other guy, they would lose. So you get the most talent, you're going to win. And I, I soon learned that, you know, the players are, are very, very sensitive individuals. Um, and it's very much about um, understanding what makes the individual tick, particularly in basketball, particularly in, in the BBL, which is a kind of a mid-level league. So you have some players who have who are settled here. You have some players who are looking to pursue an agenda further further up the tiers. Um, you have lifers here, then, you, you know, and... and, and Understanding the mentality of, of, of the of somebody who was putting their their job on the line every night, not for a tremendous amount of money, but, but because it was something that they wanted to do, and understanding how they ticked, um, that was that was the biggest thing because he uh, he he, I think his probably his, his greatest skill was his ability to understand. And get into the heads of players. If that makes any sense, the psychology. He could tell if there was a, he could tell if a player had a personal problem just by walking in the gym and looking at the way that he was warming up. And he'd be saying to me, "Dave, he ain't right. He ain't right." And I'd be saying, "What do you mean? He's just done a layup." And he'd come back and he wasn't right. There was something going on, you know, whatever. Uh, and that um, kind of, you know, taking away my side of it was always I was always into numbers and and. and and, and and teams and stats and league and all that type of stuff and understanding what it takes not just to get a good team but to get the best performance when it mattered out of players and to understand what's going on and make sure they're all pulling in the same direction when you've got a group of entire of very disparate individuals who are playing for disparate purposes um, he taught us that a lot and, and also the importance of being sincere I mean, that is what I have to be in my job. I have an oath to the court, an oath to clients, etc. But the importance of just being straight with everybody and telling them what, you know, and letting it out and telling them what, the, telling them what he thought yeah. and, just, and being able to justify it. I, um, I guess that's what he, because what, what, like I said, I, I briefly spoke to him. Uh, and one of the things he said in terms of topics, which I think is basically what you've just said, is asking about how to read the signs. You know, how do you know who is there and who is not and how to get them there? Yeah. That's it, right? Yeah, that that is it. And then you've also got because you've got to be aware, and then you have to be aware of that in a game situation. So it was quite important that I under, that I kind of understood that because if there was somebody who wasn't there mentally for whatever reason in the game situation, he'd be looking at me either because he was on the bench and he wasn't playing, and he'd be he'd be saying to me, "Why aren't I playing? He ain't there," or he'd be on the court saying, "You know, basically giving me the eyes, which are saying, get him out, get him, you know, here, he ain't ready, he ain't ready.'" And I'm thinking, well, yeah, but we still kind of need something from him, Fab, you know? Because yeah, Fab would happily play games with five players and he thought those five players were the right five players. Well, and he did that at Birmingham with, with Nigel. You know, he had success with Nigel and Tony Sims and Reggie Kirk and the Fab Five at Birmingham. So he was always about, it was never about how many players you've got. It was about getting them all, getting as many as you can on the same page and trusting each other 
and and um, and building a, a group as a result of that. And I think the game, the sports, kind of gone away from that a little bit now with 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 the sports science. It has to it has to in the managing minutes and that type of stuff. Um, but even then, you know, we just won the trophy final in March with six players. You know, you know, and, and Darius playing forty three minutes, and Darius. You know, and in seven foot hasn't played playing forty one minutes. You know, so you can still win that way. It's just whether you've got the 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 the, the group is 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 put together properly. Um, so that's it, and, and also just the, probably the competitiveness. Just to be, you know, we were always. I, I think I'm as competitive as he is. He wouldn't. I don't know if he would agree with that, but we're just very competitive in different ways. Um. You know, and, and having that competitiveness every game, to know that if you'd won the last game, it was actually more likely that you were going to be rubbish in the next game because the BBL goes that way. Teams get comfortable. The team that's coming off a loss plays harder. You know, and to try and see that before it happens and stop it happening um, and get the right guys who have that consistency of approach to prevent it happening. So, yeah, a lot of it was psychology with him. The other thing uh, he spoke about, and I think it's kind of relevant to a lot of the other stuff we want to get into, is is kind of you know going from uh, being, if you want to call it a fan, and and sort of having all of these opinions, but then actually getting on the inside and seeing the reality of how things work and what is possible, what isn't possible. Can you kind of talk about that transition uh, for you, and and maybe the biggest things, uh, the biggest sort of. Uh, opinions that were changed uh, from your own personal standpoint, from when you went from you know the the being in the stands to to being on the side and actually seeing behind the scenes of of things that work and don't work. I think the biggest thing I had was an appreciate was a far greater appreciation of just how good these guys are, um, and how you know even to you know, people say oh the BBL this the BBL that to to get a job, you know either as an American or as a, as a British player in the BBL, you've generally been through a significant amount of college. You've played at a higher level in college. You know, we signed guys from Notre Dame, from Seton Hall, you know, first team, Horizon League players, whatever. And seeing them practice and seeing how committed they are to their craft um, was an eye-opener because people don't see the practice and they don't understand the amount of work that goes in. And you're watching these guys shooting, you know, in, you know, in drills, and they're, you know, they are making eighty or ninety percent of their threes, you know, unguarded. But even so, they are just, you know, just at a different level to what people, I think, understand. So that was the first thing. Then there was an appreciation of all the stuff they did behind the scenes in relation to the community, and the, and the mentality that um, the players had, and it helped kind of bind the team together. So that was a change. And thirdly, I think. As a fan, you think you know everything on the basis of what you see. Um, as a coach, you realise you know extremely little. You know, in, in relation, you, know, you, you realise that the answers that you would have as a fan aren't necessarily the answers. Yeah. It's so, like, what's, I mean, what's that law called? There's a law where, like, the more you know, the more you realise you don't know. So you actually is it Dunning? Is it Dunning Kruger effect? Or there's there's some. I think it is something like that. Yeah. Ian Ian's very good at that. That's McLeod. He knows all that stuff. Um, but yeah, yeah. Basically, that's right. Um, and you have to. It, it, the, I think the, the phrase is the known unknowns. You have to understand the known unknowns. You have to know what you don't know. Um, 
and that's absolutely critical. And you know, I'm not going to be able to tell, you know, Ramon Fletcher how to run the point. He's been doing it all his life. You know, or, or am I going to tell Fab how to play defense? Or, or, or you know, I'm, I'm not. But um, what I can be there is a sounding board. I can say, I can sound there, and if people want to sound off or say something, or I can make suggestions as to how we can do things slightly better to suit the skills that the guys have got, and that type of thing. But um, in relation to the, I, I did once after about a year of being coach, I did look back and think of all the think of all the times I previously thought he was wrong when I'd been a fan, and. I think I reckon about a third of them. I still think he was wrong, <laughs> but the other two thirds, I think I, I kind of understood what was going on, um, and I figured it all out. You know, he, Fab was famous at times for if a guy wasn't doing what he was doing, he would he would just play five guys. He would sit them on the end of the bench. He wouldn't play them. And to a fan, when your team's getting beat by fifteen at home, that's like what the heck is he doing? You know, he's he's you know it's just crazy. But when you see it, you see the practices before and you understand the team dynamic, you understand why it's happening. Um, so that was that really was a, an education. Um, not so much the last years because we kind of figured it out by then, I think. How frustrating do you find... I, I, I call you in jest the, uh, the sort of the chief of defensive BBL Twitter, you know? Like, I know that if anyone is slandering the BBL on Twitter, I can go and look at the replies and you'll be the first one in there, um, yes. you know, giving an opinion and, and, and sort of, well, in many cases, defending the BBL, which uh, I think is, is great. And I, I actually, I think you're one of the, the few people that's uniquely placed uh, to have an opinion across kind of all levels of the game because you've, you've been involved as a fan, but you've been involved, you know, as an assistant coach, but you've also seen operationally, you know, you're a trustee of the, the Eagles Community Foundation. Um, you're involved at a grassroots level. Uh, you kind of have done a bit of everything, so to speak. You're a qualified, you're a qualified table official and, and all the other bits and bobs. Referee. Qualified, referee. Qualified. Um, yeah, so, yeah, like you come at it with a, with a pretty uh, broad spectrum um of insight and experience like i guess so let's let's start with what is your number one gripe uh that you have with people that are critical of the bbl what's the number one criticism you you see of the bbl that you believe is actually incorrect is it um i try and answer anything you you remember what i say i do come back at people at times i try and do it primarily with facts as opposed to opinions I always try and make sure there's a fact to justify the opinion um, there are so many legitimate criticisms. Let's be blunt. You know, there are things that we could do better. And, and it's, it's when, um, I think the most frustrating one for me is, is in relation to the level of play. I absolutely understand what the level of play in the BBL is. I've recruited teams for the last decade. I understand where it compares with basically every other league in Europe because I've recruited players from looking at virtually every other league in Europe. And I've seen the ones that do well in the UK and the ones that don't do well in the UK. So I can tell you that if, if you're getting, if you're averaging 18 a game in Serie B in Italy, you're going to be doing fine. You, you, you'll do fine in, in, in the BBL. But I can also tell you that if you've played you know, 20 games in Serie C, you're not going to be getting off the bench much. And I know that. Um, and and that, you can say that for all, basically all, basically every other league in Europe, German Pro A, German Pro B, whatever. Uh, that's in my head. That all that information is there. And what we tend to find is there is a, a level of. Um, it, it's always instructive to me that 
players who haven't played in the BBL don't really think much of it. But when the players, when they come to play in the BBL, the, the word is always, oh, this is better than I thought. Always. Um, or actually the standard isn't bad. You know, and it isn't bad because we got, you know, ultimately Justin Robinson. You know, Obi was in the league last year. I appreciate it was, it was one-off. You know, um, proper good level British players. Outside of the top 10 British players, probably top 15, we have basically the rest of the, the, the a significant amount of British, good British players. And the Americans we have, you're telling me that I'm saying the guy um, who was the captain, uh, captain of Notre Dame and averaged 10 and 6, Scott Martin, in, in a senior season at Notre Dame. Uh, and you're telling me that he's the kind of the, the level of an equivalent kind of mid-level Division 2 player. It's like, no, he's not. He's better. And, and that's, you know, and, and so... Um, so I think an un- a lack of understanding, I think, just as to the, the level and what it takes to win um, in the league is probably my main gripe. If somebody undervalues the standard of the players that we have, um, then I will come back at them. No, I'm not... Why, where do you think that, that criticism comes from? Like, if, if, that, is the, if that is the perception, like, what, what is it that's causing it? Is it, everything, is, it, is it everything else around the league? The fact that it doesn't get national media attention, the fact that, you know, some venues don't look great, like, kind of where, what is causing that? I think, I think, it's, I think my, my guess is, and it's a guess, so I'm not going to be uh, seek to try and, um, you know, demonstrate a degree of insight that I don't have, but it's a guess. My guess is it's word of mouth. Um, and you know we we players who have, do well in college in America come back and um, aren't necessarily ready to play. I'm talking about British players come back and aren't necessarily ready to play in, in winning teams in the BBL. And what we tend to do is to undervalue the guys who've been in the league for a number of years and have won. Um, I, th- I say word of mouth, it's also a problem that the reality is the BBL is not well represented in what are the hotbeds of basketball in this country. So Manchester has been up and down the BBL team. You know, the Magic has been the primary pro. The Giants have struggled over the past few years and ended with their venues. Hopefully things have changed now they've got a new owner. Birmingham is a hotbed of basketball. Birmingham is, is, is lost to the BBL. That's a problem. You know, nobody in Birmingham's going to say I've had a good experience because 20 years ago their club just was basically whipped away from them by um, by by a rogue owner and it never came back. In reality, London, and it, happily now this is changing. But if you look at the the, the the BBL within kind of a 50 mile radius of the M25, it's basically other than the guys in Guildford who've had who've done it on number and a number of different entities. So the Scorchers, the, the Heat, sorry, United, all that stuff, they've changed around. Um, it's taken Vince probably, what, five, six, seven years to, to build any form of, of, of base in, in the copper box. Happily, he's there now, and that's great. But the, the BBL in that area is, in, in the kind of 50-mile radius outside of London, it's, it's just failed. Um, I mean, and, and that's not a criticism of... Um, the people who've made it, who kept it going, because you know Vince went to a shopping centre to play. You know, uh, you know, he played. He got. He built his own warehouse. He's done everything he possibly could to to keep that franchise going, and hopefully, he's going to benefit from that now. Buy it. 
But, you know, if you're American, if you've got a kid coming back from college and he, he says, oh, I'll, can I play with the Lions? Where are you playing? Oh, we're playing in a shopping centre. That does not make the league look good. Be blunt. That, that, that's the way that gets around. And then you look at the fact that, in reality, down in, in, your, in that kind of area, there are a number of upwardly mobile Division One clubs. Um, so, you know, the, the Division One is Hemel and... Um, so, down south, obviously, and, and Worthing down south, Division One, and Leopards, Essex, all of that stuff, Westminster, all these clubs, um, and 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 they've been manageable and workable. But the the BBL really hasn't until Vince has got to Vince has got to where he's got to now hasn't worked. Even the Royals, you know, the, the fact that we've not been able to run a, a club out of Crystal Palace, you know, the Crystal Palace, South London, and is the hotbed of British basketball. You, I mean, obviously you run, you, you, you run um, the, the, the Hoops Fix Classic there. You know, look at all the guys who have come out of it. Look at Justin, Matthew. Um, that way you know you know them better than me. Yeah, you know, Eric, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, you know, if, if the reputation of the league is, that's why it was a massive thing. It was a massive thing for the league when Justin came back. You know, if the reputation of the league is not good, the word gets around those people and, and it's not understood. And to be fair, it isn't a good situation. It, it, it was great for us to be winning everything in Newcastle for donkey's years. We, it was fantastic. It's what we wanted to do and we're doing it. But it doesn't add to the national exposure of the league. Yeah. If the trophy final is between Newcastle and Plymouth, um, then there's not, that isn't really going to send a good message to the, to the young guys who are balling in Birmingham and Manchester. You- they're not close to it. They don't know it. Like, where do you sit on kind of whose responsibility is for helping clubs develop? Like, on the, on a club development standpoint, you, know, you talk about up, upwardly mobile Division One clubs. Um, yeah. You know, and there's been obviously with what Solent did last season and, and looking like what they're going to do this season, it looks like in Division One everyone's playing for second place. Uh, yeah. But you know, you look at Solent and you know they get to the BBL trophy final. Um, there's a conversation there about, oh, you know, should they go to the BBL? Would they go to the BBL? And, you know, and there has been debate about, well, what's the actual incentive for them to go to the BBL? Is there is there enough of an incentive for them to go to the BBL? Do you think that's where potentially there's an issue? It's like, well, if, you, if you're already filling your venue every week, if, you, if you're doing what you need to do to be profitable and you've got the fans, like, because there isn't a national TV exposure, because there isn't a national media coverage exposure, like, how much are you going to grow as a result of being in the BBL? Like, and, and who is responsible for kind of helping these clubs and, and maybe advising these clubs on options to potentially help grow the league? Because that's the thing, you know, especially Paul Blake, we always hear him talk about the fact you need more clubs. Like, you need more clubs. The league needs to be bigger, you know? That's absolutely right. That, that, if I may say, that's a hell of a good question. That is absolutely, that actually gets to the nub of a number of different issues that we have. Um, primarily, the, the issue has always been the, the dichotomy between the basketball and, and, and the BBL in relation to the, 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 the different styles of the league. You've got a franchise league, you've got a league run by national organisation, um, a national governing body, sorry. Um, the, in relation to the, the merits in um, going to the BBL, the only benefit in going to the BBL is if you've got an arena which, is, which, you, need, which you want to fill. So ultimately have a 400-seat, 500-seat gym. Um, the, you know, Worthing tried this. I mean, we were talking about this, but one of my um, truisms is that anything that is being discussed in the BBL will have been discussed 10 years ago and it will have been discussed 20 years ago. And it will have probably been discussed 30 years ago. And it may have been done. And the answers will be there if you look back. Because what you're saying to me about Solent there is where Worthing were in 2009. And they came up to the BBL in 2010. They had two seasons in the BBL. And they had to drop back down because there was ultimately financially 
um, not sustainable for them. And they were playing in Worthing Leisure Centre, which is probably one of the better MBL1 venues, or certainly was at the time. And we visited it often enough. We seem to be down there every week when we were playing. And it was a long trip. Um, but they, they couldn't make it work. And they had a decent team. They, they, um, they got to the playoffs. Certainly, I think, I think the, the, the final, the, the coup de grace for them was when they had to come to Newcastle to play a one-legged playoff game at the end of the season. You know, and, and we beat them. Um, we were first, they were eighth. We beat them, and they're they're about three thousand pound out of pocket, mm. or something, you know, because of the trip and etc. And so, if you don't have a venue that you can benefit from filling, it's very difficult to see. And that's where the answer the answer to your question comes from. Um, the responsibility in relation to more clubs comes down to more venues. That responsibility, from what I can see, it should be taken primarily by the national governing body. In, to liaise and link with the funders to establish appropriate sites, to establish appropriate new build venues around areas where clubs can develop or where clubs are already developed. And I do, and I think Basketball England has done a lot of things very well over the past 20 years. Um, certainly the, the, the youth structure is so much different to when I was growing up, it's crazy. I think Basketball England is full of some very good people doing difficult jobs but I think where they've failed more than anything else is in relation to providing support for the higher level and um, as it were semi-pro teams um, and the reality is that the I know that there is some support offered kind of coming down from some of the BBL clubs on an individual basis and that clubs are invited to um, put plans together and work with those plans etc and we've had success in relation to Bristol and um, Worcester, probably going back a bit further, uh, coming up, who weren't necessarily successful programmes in MBL1, but who are moving forward as clubs. But, but it seems to me that we need more clubs, and we need to have more clubs, we need more venues. And a venue doesn't have to be an enormous venue. It needs 1,500 seats. Ellesmere Port at Cheshire is, isn't it, a perfect example of it. Modern, it's airy. It's, you know, it's 1,500 seats. It creates a good atmosphere in there. It's perfectly plausible to have those type of venues all over the country. And we don't seem to have any form of um, national strategy to get them. And I think that's where we struggle. Um, the venue up here, which I was intimately involved in as a trustee it could, in, in Newcastle, that was 10 years of work for, for Sam and Paul. And probably if you go back to creating the climate within the community for the council to be interested, probably another 10 years of development before that. You know, and th that was, you know, that wasn't, there was limited um, support until a relatively late stage in relation to that project. If Sam and Paul hadn't wanted to do it, it wouldn't have happened. Uh, and, um, you know, the fact we had a national basketball centre in Manchester and we're only now, only now four years on, got a team playing in it. That, that, that to me is incomprehensible. Mm. You know, we, we need to be showcasing our best league. Uh, so there needs to be more, more cohesion between Basketball England and the BBL. I don't know enough about it to know if there is, if there is, if there are, what what the issues are, or whether whether if there is blame or if there is um, difficulties where those difficulties lie. I don't know enough about that. But we need a national facility strategy, and that national facility strategy has to involve professional clubs because professional clubs create an economy for the sport. 
an economy for the sport means more people get jobs. The more people get jobs, the more interest there is. The more, the more we can expert, the more we can spend the sport. Yeah, I think it's a situation where Mark Stuttle is a GB coach and he's having to coach in Division Three because we've only got eleven pro teams and they've all got coaches. Yeah, but you know, that's just it, it's just not sustainable. It can't be right. Yes, yeah, uh, there's a lot of problems. As, but, as much as there needs to be like a more venues and facilities the other thing is like you need you need a strong club and an ambitious club to be based out of it otherwise it's it's all a waste right and i think you know when i think yeah. about um some of the lower well some of the national league clubs i don't know how many actually really do have ambitions of growing this thing as big as they can or want to do it because you know ultimately like you said there really isn't that much of an economy for Barcelona in this country very much they're they're uh, the clubs are driven by volunteers and as a result of that it's a secondary activity um on the side and not their sort of their their primary thing, but it's um yes yeah, double-edged sword. In terms of like, I know we've obviously discussed this privately, and I, I don't know how much you're willing to share, but uh, in terms of sort of the tangible difference, let's let's talk pre-COVID. Um, what that arena has meant to the Eagles, like I know, like you said, uh, like, well, like we've said that you're you're obviously on the on the Eagles um uh community Just foundation board. trust board, so yeah. you kind of you know the figures and kind of what's going on behind the scenes. Can you discuss sort of the impact that arena has had to the club, what it means for your bottom lines, um, and when people talk about well, why we hear so many people within the BBL say the key is having your own facility? Um, the impact um, isn't actually... It was only just kicking in at COVID time because we'd been in there a year and there was lots of things that we needed to sort out. My side of the impact is is on the community side because it's about, as you said, building the economy for the sport. It provides us with a, 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 a site in, in a um, relatively deprived area of the west end of Newcastle um, to have people involved in the sport, which is under you know, our control and our ability to fund. Now, the example of it, uh, the example I can give is that we, we have a our community foundation runs um, nine nine ten or eleven junior clubs I can't remember, and they all they all have at least one paid coach attached to them so it's not entirely volunteer based. There's a staff and four or five of that staff are full time. Um, I once we moved into the new arena, I actually took over the running of the central venue league, which had been running out of a school in North Shields. And um, and set it and set it up so we could be using it. And our goal um, is to increase our number of members of all those clubs to a thousand. So we want to, we want to have a thousand um, junior members playing basketball with a new with a kit of their specific club, but with also the Newcastle Eagles Community Foundation on. In by March of last year, we already reached. Um, 84 teams in our central venue league. We'd gone up from 49 to 84. We'd introduced an under 10 section played across the court 4v4 and 8 foot basket. Um, and they just played 20 minute running clock and um, didn't keep scores or anything, or didn't keep league tables or anything like that. And we had 27 teams within six months of starting. That's a hundred. That's a hundred plus under tens playing every Sunday morning for at least an hour, and then going into their clubs a little during the week and playing for at least an hour, hopefully more. Just like it is in football up here, just like it is in cricket up here. If you you, you play the weekend, you practice during the week. 
we never had that in basketball up here because we never had the facility or the ability to do it. And if you don't introduce the kids at an early stage to the opportunity to play and not just kind of t- go into a school once and then six months later somebody else goes into a school, that's no good. You have to get them into the sport whereby they are playing and they are attending to play the next, and then they've got a practice session and they've got games the next week and games the next week and games after that. And you have to do that from the age of seven or eight because that's what football does and that's what cricket does and that's what rugby does. If you can do that, you can build an economy for the sport because the parents bring the kids along, the parents buy the gear, the parents buy the equipment and, and the kids who maybe don't like football or, or don't like rugby, they've got their sport. And then you've got the, then, then the, the child is there and, and the parent is there and then we will got to do is, is provide the, the service. And that's what we were getting to. And that's where it changes everything. Um, because those kids are the kids who then buy the tickets for the games. You know, we, we have... We have to educate the kids because the parents are beyond the education. They don't see the sport. The kids don't see the sport on the television. It's not like they watch much of the game, watch the analysis. Um, when I was growing up, I had, to, I had all the old satellite boxes. I had screen sport to try and find Kingston's games in Europe. You know, I had. I remember the 1989 European Championships were on some ridiculous um, satellite program with Lithuania and Sabonis and Yugoslavia and Divac beating the crap out of each other. You know, I remember those games. But we don't. The kids don't have that, and so we have to almost force feed it to them, and we have to make it accessible, and we have to make it child friendly, and we have the great advantage at the arena where we have a balcony, so the parents aren't anywhere near the court, so all the parents are on the balcony away from the court, and and, and the kids, um, and we have the basket, the court the baskets on the, the sides of the courts as well, so the kids can play across the court. But building the economy, the more kids that play, the more coaches we can employ. The more you know, we had, we just set up our membership. We we set up a membership scheme a week ago online um, for our kid, for our junior members, and they get discounts as part of the teams as well. Um, they, they pay an annual membership of thirty pounds. They get a basketball. They get their insurance. They get various other things as well. And they they can't practice with us until they're annual members. And we set that up last week on the Eagles website, and within a week we've got 430 signed up. You know, and, and these are the numbers that change things. We want to get to a thousand. We want, ultimately we'll, we'll, by the end of this year we'll probably be at 750, um, because they bring parents and grandparents. That's building an economy, and that's what we need more of across the, the sport. And that's why the venue is so important because it allows us to do that. It allows us to store our equipment. It allows us to sell pop in, the, in, 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 in sandwiches and stuff like that. In relation to the professional game, obviously it's a great help. But the professional game itself isn't going to build an economy for the sport. You know, the economy is built is, is jobs. Um, and jobs come from participation as much as anything else. In the professional game, ultimately, every professional team is going to try and win. So we, the more revenue we raise, the more we can pay the players, which is good because everybody involved in the BBL is underpaid for what they provide, not just players, referees, staff, coaches, everybody's underpaid as far as I'm concerned for the effort of having seen it close hand over 10 years for what they put into their craft and what they put into their sport. So we do need to do that. But we've all seen what happens if you just come along with a, with a, with a check and say there's 600 grand. You know, we see the London City Royals. Mm. No, I'm not being, that, that's the truth of it. There's no economy for the sport there. And that's not a criticism of anybody who took the money or anybody who joined that club because they were told one thing and another thing happened. Mm. Um, but it's not. It's in no way, long way sustainable. So that's why the venue is so critical. Yeah. Um, 
it focuses everything around the central point. It's, it's funny you say I, I always remember having a conversation with the Royals owner uh, after it kind of all went to all went to pot and, and the first thing he said was that um, we did it the wrong way around. We thought we could build from the from the from the top down rather than the bottom up and if I was to do it again I would have done it the other way. So that was super interesting. There were two two things you said there. Um that uh are the two if I was to talk about I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago, months ago, I, I put a thing on Twitter about the biggest opportunities in British basketball. And in terms of like um lowest lowest risk, highest reward, because obviously the the whole thing is like, yeah, facilities of course, but that the infrastructure, the money that, that requires is massive. But when when we're talking about opportunities to be able to really drive things forward, there are two that I see that are that are pretty obvious. One is the membership side of the game, uh, which you spoke about there, but about, about make sure you know you've got your players that are registered with the club before you can um, before they can then take part in sessions. And and that I I would like to see from a from a governing body standpoint where they really incentivize membership in a much bigger way, so that for example someone like me who's not a member should be a member, and they can use those numbers as leverage when you're talking about raising money, whether it's commercially or also with um uh from the government that's that's one and then the second one uh is mini basketball and sort of the under 10s where there just really isn't much provision at all and i always think you know for any young player coming up the issues are, are basically just where you're going to play um like where are there sessions to play kids uh, of my age like if i was to put that question to you when you're talking about opportunities lowest risk highest potential reward um sort of the biggest leverage points to really drive basketball forward as a whole like uh, what would you say well, you're absolutely no. You're, you're nailed on. It's under tens, um, it, without a shadow of a doubt. When I, I, I mentioned before, I coached football in America. When I came back from America in about 2001, um, I became involved in the boys in the old community association. It was a boys club that I used to play for football for in Gateshead. And at that point, mini soccer was just starting in Gateshead. And, 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 and up until that point, kids had been playing 11 a side at the age of seven, and you know, and it wasn't really very sensible. And so mini soccer was starting. And I'd seen how it worked in America because they were ahead of us. And we came back and um, I inst- we, I say I, we, and a few, me and a few others, we instituted quite a significant mini, uh, mini soccer approach, revolution almost, in Gateshead, based out of our club. We ran the Central Venue League out of our club. We ended up with 20 under 10s teams at our club, just at one club. We just basically had kids come along and play. And it invigorates the whole club. It invigorates the whole side because you don't just have... Because up until... Once you get to 12, the kids come if they want to come. Up until 12, the kids bring entourages. They bring parents. They bring grandparents. They all want to be... They want to be part of something. The parents want to see that the kids are, are fitting in and belong to something, you know, and therefore... The opportunity is it, and football, and to a certain degree, rugby, um, and particularly up here, football is just enormous. I mean, football is just uh, just gigantic to the point that when we've fixed our um, CVL days, we play under 12s and up on a Saturday because they play football on a Sunday, and we put under 10s and down on a Sunday because they play football on a Saturday. You know, so we want to give the, you know, it, it's actually that much thought went into it. So the the, the invigorating invigoration you get of having an influx of kids at the age of six or seven when they don't know what sport they want to play they don't know if they want to play any sport at all basketball is such a fantastic child-friendly sport because it allows the kids you only need a ball and a hoop and it allows the kids to have success almost immediately throwing the ball through the hoop that's it it's not a situation like football where they might be in a game and you know one big kid might be running past everybody and the other the other kids are on the sideline um it and also, it's a, 
basketball is a sport you can basically practice one-on-one as much as you want, want with a ball and a hoop. And the look of success and the look of joy on parents' faces when the kids come out smiling and the look when the kid makes his first layup or just in a short, and they have that sense of belief in themselves, you can get them. And if you get the kids at seven and eight, then it comes to be a question of can you get the... Um, you're getting the right athletes in your sport and also you're getting a pyramid belief that of people who are helping build an economy for the sport because out of the interested parents you can train up coaches you can train up referees you can um, train up volunteers all sorts of stuff um, which you can then supervise to continue to, to, to build that economy and um, it doesn't work half-hearted it doesn't work you know, one of the first things I did for the foundation five years ago when my son was six, and we didn't do any, our foundation runs a fantastic Hoops for Health program, but that was always year five, so there were 10-year-olds. And um, I said, well, why are we doing anything for the year twos, year ones and year twos? So what we, we instituted a program called Little Dribblers. I actually coached the first few sessions of it, went up to um, the school. We basically... School had to, it was a, it was a pro, it was an after school club, so the, the kids did have to pay a little bit. I had to pay £2.50 a session like they do for all the other after school clubs. And um, part of it was that the school was provided with two hoops, seven foot or eight foot hoops or whatever, and a bag of mini basketballs. And that stayed with the school. So we just came up, did you know, 15 kids signed up to stay for an extra hour, and, and we played with them. And then from that, we feed them into the club, which is based at the secondary school of the road. And so they're then asked to come into the club. And at that point, the need is then, well, what are they going to get out of the club? And the answer is, well, you're going to get coached a little bit more. You're going to get taught about the footwork of the sport. You're going to have to be there every week. We expect, you know, that, that there's only so many space, so you have to be committed to it. And you're going to get to play games every weekend. And the games aren't as much level, you know, because it's a familiarisation. It's not about, you know, finding the next um, LeBron James at age seven. Um, but from that, from a couple of years, the couple of years of familiarisation that they get at years kind of when they're seven, eight, and nine, means that you've got a chance when they decide they want to be good at the age of ten and eleven to get them into the proper system and to get them, to get them coached and to have them playing like that. You know, Doncic was playing for Real Madrid at eleven, you know, something like that. He was or thirteen. You know, he's playing under under sixteens basketball at eleven. Um, you just have to get them early, and you have to get, and then and then you can build. So we've now got merchandise pages for our for our clubs. So the club that um, my brother runs is Cardinal Hornets. It's got 180 members. Um, had 13 under 10s teams last year. They've got a merchandise page on Hoop Freaks, whereby they can get water bottles and kit and training tops and all sorts of stuff, and gradually trying to kind of build the economy that way. But I am I'm, I'm with you. That is it, and, and that I think is the if there were two failings of the, of the governing body, I think one is putting forward realistic competitive structures, I say competitive, realistic opportunities for under 10s to play. And I'm talking about seven-year-olds here. And um, secondly is in relation to the, the adult clubs who need to be pushed on a bit further, which we talked about before. When we're talking about uh, criticisms of the Newcastle Eagles programme, um, yeah. You know, one of the ones which I, we've had multiple discussions, I've spoken about Paul, with Paul as well, uh, is that it's clear that you've got, you know, loads of kids playing at a grassroots level. But actually, when it comes to talent development, we're not seeing uh, kids coming out of the northeast area 
to go on to play high levels. Um, you know, I think I, I had a brief look, but you know, you so you there's obviously I'm trying to think in the time that I've been around, there was Ross Wilson who went Division One, and obviously I, I don't think yeah. he's playing anymore. Um, and yeah. then in the BBL at the moment, uh, Jordan Nichols down at Bristol, right? I think as well. Is, is... No, Jordan, Jordan was primarily T side to be fair. T side, okay. Um, but that, yeah, okay. So so. Like basically, there's you know you're absolutely you're absolutely right. There is um, Eddie Matthew, Eddie came to Eddie our Matthew. program, yeah, and um, Tozan. Oh, and Tozan, of course, always... yeah, of course, Tozan. So why are um, we not seeing more talent come out of the Newcastle Eagles program? When we talk about junior development, uh, elite development, like what do you think it is that's not allowing you guys to create more talent coming out of the area? A very good question. It's one that I've set myself a task of solving. Um, uh, my initial view is that it is uh, because we don't get the kids early enough. We never did. You know, we, we started National League under 14s. Our CVL started at under 12s, but we didn't make any significant effort um, because of the, the, the strictures of space that we had in relation to the venue places where we were going to kind of mass market at seven, eight, nine-year-olds to get the kids at a younger age group. Um, I don't think it is as much to do with the um, the pathways. I think the pathways have improved um, over the past few years, but the reality is that up until probably Ross, which is one of the... The reason we got Ross was because he went to Hoops for Health session at Gosford High School when he was 10, and he got involved in the sport, and he happened to be an athletic freak. And you would accept that, you know. He was he was he was six seven athletic, and he was a high level athlete. Um, we didn't get Ross because he we, we, he had a basketball in his hand when he was seven, and he was dribbling the basketball around everywhere he went. We did so. We've been limited um, to a certain well. We've been limited in reality um, to kids who have been late starters, which means you're limited to athletes. And that's the same as the rest of the country, though, as well, right? Yeah. It is. Um, limited to athletes, and we don't have it. I don't think I think we, we've not had the athletes because we haven't got them into sport quick enough, and they've all been playing football. Um, if I'm honest, uh, beyond that, I think the fact that Max now that Max in charge, Max been in charge of the academy for three or four years, and he's now the head coach, and, and that helps its way through. I think I would be disappointed if we don't have more coming through in the near future. We've got Leo Leperia is under 16. He's playing for his in England squad. Yemisi, I um, can't remember Yemisi's second name. The girl who's in the under 15 squad was very, very good. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, we, we need out of the number. It's, it's kind of our next step. We build the economy, but then we have to um, do a better job at, I think, um, and we've actually talked about it, was starting under 11, under 12 development squad this year. Of picking out of those nine and ten year olds, and um, the kids who are, have the potential to go further, and to subject themselves to more um, intensive, to subject them to more intensive practices, and to develop it that way. I mean, even, but I do think that our, our systems over the last few years are a lot better than they were, and unfortunately, we're still a little bit damned by, you know, basically ten years where we had, we were telling everybody how many kids we had, but we weren't producing any players, and that was the truth. Mm. Um, but even now, Temba, Temba Yabantu, who's on the bench for the BBL team, Temba went through, played for Ian at Gateshead College, played through the Arrow Academy in the 16th. Temba's got a chance. 
you know, he's, it's his third year now, he's getting stronger, he's getting better. I don't know, he, he, we expect him to, to be able to contribute at some point, you know. And, and, and so I suppose the answer is, yeah, we've got to do a bit better. Um, but, I'm, but I know how we're going to do better, I know how we're going to make it better. Um, and I know that with the venue that we've got, we've got no excuse not to. In the past, there were excuses because you, you have to get the bodies in the build. You have to get the bodies in the gym to pay the wages. Mm. We can't pay the wages. We can't maintain. We can't maintain basketball. So it became, a, you know, and so the, the, the secondary part of that, which is, you know, the the, the the fact that the best players in the country will generally come out of very concentrated programs, whereby they only have ten or twenty kids, and they're kind of whittled down, and they have trials every year, and kind of that elite level development. Very difficult to run both participation and elite at the same time. It's possible, but generally one of, and, and then to run participation, elite and pro at the same time, I don't think anybody's ever done that successfully in the UK. Um, because you look at the best, you look at the best, the best um, participation and junior elite programs like Manchester or, or Birmingham, the Magic for instance, Magic, Always took the considered, the considered decision not to go pro because they didn't want it to impact upon the the, the the stuff that they were doing for the kids, which is fine. You know, it's great. It's, what they do for the kids is great. But I don't think it's ever really been accomplished in, in any organisation, and that's the target we've set ourselves. Mm. And that, that's really what I'm. What I'm to be honest, it's kind of one of the reasons that I was quite comfortable stepping down because I know the stuff to do. Mm. It'll be and interesting. It'll be interesting to see. I don't know if you saw. Obviously, um. Uh, but I can have you just announced they're gonna. There's a partnership being formed formally with with the London Lions. Yeah. Um. So it'll be interesting to see how that works out. You you look at Lions now. You know, with with UEL as well, and then you've got the WBBL side, and then now you've got the academy sort of formally linked. Like it's. I think it's going to take a little while. I don't see there being immediate changes. Well, well, but you're gone. No, it, it, it always takes a while, and the problem is developing players. Is is unless you get kind of the the, the player who is, as I say, either an athletic. Um, level, you know, which obviously um, um, Ross was, and to a certain degree, Tozan was. Tozan's a very smart kid, or a kid like Eddie, who is just basketball, basketball, one hundred and fifty percent, who would bounce the ball and stick if he could. Um, you know, what we don't, what we have to do a better job of is creating kind of that that second layer, that that base to the pyramid of of kids who may not be, you know. Every good, every good team in Europe has a homegrown point guard. They all have their point guards coming through the system. You know, the, the Europeans. And um, we've always struggled to produce guards in this country. And if there haven't been um, people who've had specific links with coaching greats in this country, so, you know, you're talking Justin is... Um, Jimmy Rogers and Brixton, you're talking... Um, Andrew Lawrence is obviously his family. His family is... His weight in basketball. Even Dan Clark, his, his family is basketball. You know, if you go through that, then suddenly all our all our GB guards are coming in from America. You know, we're, we're not. You know, I think probably outside of Teddy, uh, um, Luke Nelson's dad as well. Luke Nelson, Steve, obviously Steve Nelson when he played at Sunderland. Yeah, when uh, Luke Nelson's dad as well. There's a, so there's a link between an interest, and if you even if you go back, if you go down in the junior setups. You're seeing Nate Robinson as part of the UK, GB set. Well, he's Mark Robinson's son. Yeah, yeah. You know, and... Um, That's interesting. 
It's interesting. It actually carries across many sports because if you look at cricket now, and particularly, you know, the, the, the lot of cricketers come out of families of cricketers, Stuart Broad, Chris Broad, um, or, or from private schools as well. And, and, and the reason for that is because what we haven't done is developed kind of a coterie of um, kind of 10 or 15 point guards at any spot, at any, in any age group, who can then fight amongst each other to get to the, to the top. And most of the kids that we send abroad are, are athletes. That's the reality of it. That's the reality. So that that that's something that probably has to, has to be changed. How it's changed, I don't know. Um, but we're, we're going to try. It's probably definitely the, the other thing I've got to ask is again, we're talking about about criticisms. Is is and you've kind of alluded to the fact that uh, you know you saw, Safari Tiny was one of the first players you saw, and, and you realised his, his mum was born in England. Is the fact that a lot of the uh, the Brits on the Eagles rosters that we see are in fact uh, American developed that have access to a passport in in some way? Kind of where do you sit uh, in terms of how much that potentially could hinder the game um, in terms of not uh, having spots for true true Brits, if you want to call it that, like Brits that have been developed through the British system. Um, and kind of, yeah, what's your opinion sort of on, on that whole, uh, I guess, plastic Brit is, is, is the term that was used in the right to London 2012 uh, on that whole debate? Um, I'm a lawyer and I think it's nonsense. If I'm honest, I think it's absolute nonsense. I think Kevin Peterson um, played for England, probably England's greatest ever cricketer. Andrew Strauss was born in South Africa. Matthew Pryor was born in South Africa. Um, I don't accept the concept that I accept the concept of international law, which means if you're British, you're British, and I don't accept the idea that there's a difference between a, a, a true Brit and and a British person who was born in America with a with a with a British mother. I think you were just as British as if you were otherwise. That's what the law says. Um, I don't agree with the, I don't agree with discrimination within the law, and there's no and it's it's a futile to, to be blunt. It's a futile argument anyway because we are all governed by the law of the land and the law of the land is that you cannot discriminate against somebody with a british passport oh, of course but it's, it's about it's about an ethos right like and if i'm if i'm a young i know if i'm a young british player uh, i am going to relate and be inspired by a player that has come through and gone through the same things that i have as opposed to a player that potentially has never even stepped foot in England, but has access to a passport and comes over here to sign a pro contract, right? Like even even if you take take me, I'm half French. I've got a French passport. Uh, I can speak French. I can get by, but I definitely wouldn't class myself as as French as a person that has you know been born and lived in France the whole time. And and I could see why if I was to represent the French national team, um, true French people might ha- have an issue with that and feel like I'm an outsider or or not necessarily. Uh, you know, like French developed or whatever. Like, yeah. do you not see that it potentially impacts how younger kids can look at the pathway and see whether or not there are opportunities for them? Do you think that the West Indian kids of West Indian um, descent in the UK, of Caribbean families, of Windrush families, what do you think they think of Jofra Archer? Do you think they're inspired by him? What do you think the Muslim kids think of, of Moen Ali? You know, I, I don't. I, 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 it's right to say, and you do have a point because it's right to say that our fans like Eddie Matthew because Eddie's from up here. Exactly. We do like him, and that, that's and that is a legitimate point. But international sport now is such that the it's played by the rules, and it's wrong. I think you know Owen Hargreaves played for Manchester United, played for England in World Cups. He's German Canadian. He's picked for England. Declan Rice 
is a potato playing for England at the moment. He's Irish. You know, nobody says you know nobody says that they're not inspired. But I, 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 I don't. My view is, and this is probably something that I've probably got from Fab, although I had it beforehand as well, is that, you know, you want a job, you'd be better than the other guy. Basketball is ultimately, and every other sport, it is meritocratic. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't deny that. I'm just saying about, it's, 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 I think it's more potentially, it's not about law and what you can and can't do under the, under the, under the precipice of the rules. It's more about like what potentially uh, is the wider impact of that. Like, I think it's, it's very hard for anyone to argue that um, if Cameron Hildreth made the NBA, that would make a much bigger difference for British kids than OG Ananobi playing in the NBA. Like, I, I just, I don't think that's even a debate. And to say, no, that they're, to say that they're exactly the same, I just think it's, that's just not even close to being true. Yeah, no, no, I agree with you. Absolutely. You know, I, I, do, I do think that would be... Uh, uh, and also, you, you, we saw even that with Roald Deng. You know, um, you know, best paid British sportsman probably in history. Maybe if there was Hamilton's different, I don't know. But, um, you know, he, he could have walked down the high street and no one would know who he was. Mm. You know, someone like Pops who played in, 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 in the NBA, who was a superstar. As far as I could see, I watched him in Newcastle playing a game. He's a superstar. Yeah, people wouldn't know who he was. And I, I get that, but I think it's—I think it's—I think it's an argument that we're very much in, in, in danger of um, over-egging, and, and, and because it's just not the way the world works. You know, when you're dealing with you know professional-level sport, it just, it's not the way the world works. And um, ultimately, we're going to sign guys. Um, and to be fair, I mean, I mean it's, what you did say is we criticised because we were saying Americans with British passports. Well, if you go back through the last 15 years since I've been involved, um, who was the first team to sign Andrew Sullivan, Newcastle? Who was the first team to sign Richard Midgley, Newcastle? Who was the first team to sign Aldo Babalola, Newcastle? Who brought Darius Defoe from Hackney, Newcastle? Who gave Andrew Bridge a shot, Newcastle? Um, who signed OJ, Roland Jackman, Newcastle? You know, I, you know, there's not many. You know, I've got a list in my head of every British player who's out there who is available, and who signed, who brought Joe Aikenwin back from college and signed him, Newcastle. Um, who who brought Andy Thompson from, back from France and signed him, Newcastle. You know, it, it's. Um, I don't think it's a fair criticism at all. I've got a, I've got basically every list of every English player in my head, and if an English player who came through the English system wants to be paid. Five thousand pound more than an English player with an American, an American with an English passport who didn't have the same ability. Then it's unrealistic to suggest we're going to be paying five thousand pound more for a player simply because he came through the British system. Mm. That, that, that's, that's the reason. So if, if, the, if the player, if the play, if the player was willing to accept less money for their for their counterpart, would that become a different conversation? Where you think that then you would end up with? Do you think that is the, potentially the sticking point? My starting point, well, it was interesting because my starting point when recruiting was basically that, yeah. I would always look at, it, as it were, indigenous players first because the advantage of having indigenous players off the court insofar as they're aware of um, that the, the, you're not a risk, if I can put it that way. You know what you're getting. They know what they know what it's about if they've been in the league before. If you bring somebody over from the States or from anywhere else, that's a risk. So the, the, there's kind of an inbuilt um, advantage in having those players, and I've just listed it. I've given you a whole list of the ones that we signed. Um, but ultimately, I had an American. Also, had an American player coach, American Brit, 
who was comfortable with signing American guys as well because he knew where he knew where they'd come from. Um, so, you know, the reality is that there are not that many um, indigenous British players who come through our systems um, who are in our price range. So I'm not saying they're not good enough. I'm not saying I'm not saying that at all. But who are in our price range. Um, and we don't overpay, and we've never overpaid. And this, you know, I think Andy Thompson did a podcast with Mark Woods yesterday, where he suggested that um, you know the one of the reasons he went to France was because they offered him money that we couldn't get near. We would have loved to keep Andy, you know, at the time he was at his peak. Mm. Um, but there are a few indigenous players that we haven't signed that we could sign. We've just signed Louis Sears this year um, from Cheshire. Um, Eddie is back as well. Uh, and so the the pool of, are we saying Will Saunders last year? You know, as, as an available player, once once London Royals went went down. So the pool of players who are within our price range, who we think are at the level within our price range where they can help us win, and not just play at the bottom of the league, but help us be at the top of the league, is limited. Mm. No, there aren't that there aren't as many as you might think there are. The ones that we the ones that in theory can definitely help us win aren't in our price range. Mm. Yeah. You know? So, you know, we can't pay what London were paying those guys. What Royal sorry, not London what the Royals were paying those guys. We'd love to. Yeah. Absolutely love to. Or, or what or, or what the Turkish money is paying to Plymouth at the moment or, or what Vince is is able to recruit. I'd love to sign Byron Mullins. We can't afford him. Yeah, <laughs> to be honest, I'm aware of time, but just uh, just uh, bringing some present day stuff. Obviously, you know, speaking about recruitment there and player salaries and budgets and stuff, I would like to ask because uh, you're kind of you're privy to to what's going on behind the scenes at the Eagles um, with COVID going on, the pandemic this season, like what's your kind of take on well first of all i'd be interested to kind of hear what's your take on the british basketball economy the british basketball league economy in terms of player budgets uh salaries whether or not there has been a noticeable uh, drop in what you're paying guys and whether how much is going to change the the landscape potentially and then what you think the chances are we're going to have of, of seeing the season through without some major issues with lockdowns you know we saw eagles announced what two days ago the fact that um your test game is going to have reduced capacity like it's issues like that that potentially are going to cause problems throughout the season and like we've seen many people say uh, in the run-up to the to the year to the to this year was that if if, t- if teams can't play with fans the league essentially isn't viable like i would just yeah like kind of your take on covid and the impact that it's going to have um on the bbl this coming year it's a hell of a good question um well as we speak there's a meeting going on in government about sports um in relation to I think the football league are pushing um the football league are pushing for fans to be allowed in because they're saying we're not economically viable if we can't have fans in the get in the ground. The um, from October onwards, that's what they're saying. I think the rugby union clubs are the same. They're saying that there was a story yesterday. Saracens um, general manager saying that if we're restricted to two and a half thousand people in the ground. We'll not survive, and we can't. We can't run. I say we'll not survive. We can't run. Um, so for basketball, you, you you have to think it's pretty um, pretty difficult. Um, that said, the, the advantage we have is that we aren't a high cost based sport. You know, 
that the, the primary cost of the sport is the is the players and, and the housing of the players and the and the um and the salaries of the players. Obviously, the players' contracts will be subject to um, various clauses in relation to COVID, which, uh, to be honest, I don't know, but they will be um, if things go wrong. Um, we, but I think the league's doing the right thing in trying to start and trying to maintain the economy for the sport and trying to give people jobs and players jobs as a result. Um, well, how it will pan out, I mean, we don't. it's Wednesday afternoon now, the game is at the arena on Friday. I've just been at the arena this morning. We don't know if it's going ahead or not. You know, we've not been told it's not, so we're planning that it is. But we're fully aware that any time in the next hour or two hours or, or day, they may say we have to play behind closed doors or they may say we can't play at all. We just don't know. And we can't know because it's a public health decision and public health decisions aren't taken by people who run sports clubs. So if you kind of look at the that kind of level of difficulties for one game, then you then you start talking about a whole season. You know, um, they exponentially increase. So how, how where are we going to be? I don't know. In relation to the the economy of the sport, in relation to the kind of the wages and stuff, I don't think it had a massive impact. Um, it was unfortunate we lost about five home games. I think as a result, which which would have been income. However, a lot of the players were able to be paid by way of the furlough scheme. So there wasn't a significant debt that way. The clubs don't really have much in the way of standing assets, if I can put it that way, which are depreciating while nothing's happening. And we obviously have our issues with the arena, although that's a community foundation thing as opposed to a club thing that has to be dealt with separately. Um, but in relation to simple club things, most of the clubs run on relatively limited um Costs and the primary costs will be salaries, and they've been furloughed. So the issue then comes as to whether or not, in um, at the end of the furlough scheme, if we can't play games, what happens? Now, and there's two or three different ways around it. One is you do what ice hockey does, and you cancel the season. You say, "Sorry, we've tried, but we can't." Um, that would be regrettable, unfortunate. I think um, the the second is to say, "Well, we think we can manage this safely." Um, with a certain amount of people in the in the stands, we've. I mean, the arena, our arena at the moment is COVID friendly up to a remarkable degree in relation to one way systems and everything. And I walked in, I was different. Was walking into a different place this morning. I haven't been in there for a while. Um, so that's a feasible way out of it. In relation to some of the other clubs, um, probably you know the arenas in the BBL aren't actually as bad as people make them out to be. When you actually look at some of the arenas that people are playing in and some of the capacities, they're, they're quite, they're relatively substantial. Even, you know, the probably the lowest, the hardest one would be maybe Bristol um, in relation to, to socially distancing. They don't have that much space. Um, but outside of that, then, you know, you know, we think we could get a thousand in the Eagles arena quite comfortably with maintaining current social distancing rules. And that'll be similar for Leicester. And obviously the copper box is enormous and, and Plymouth and Ellesmere Port and Sheffield, they're all they're all upwards of a thousand people, which means that you would hope that we could get four or five hundred people in every venue, and you'd hope that that would be sufficient to keep things ticking over until hopefully we can get more people in. And so I think they're doing the right thing in trying to play, in trying to run it, but it's it's, it's everybody has to be very understanding about the problems it causes. Worst case scenario, if the season is cancelled, do you think we could be at risk of seeing 
any clubs or even the league go bankrupt? Or do you think because of the fact they're so used to running so lean, it's just a case of everything being paused, people finding other jobs to do in the meantime, and then when it comes back, everything just kind of starts up again? I think that is probably, I think that's actually probably a fair analysis. I really do. Um, you know, the, the issue with, um, the issue that COVID has showed is that um, the reason that people are playing behind closed doors is, is to make sure they don't have to pay back TV money. So the reason football and rugby and cricket are playing, are, are putting all this expense into playing these games is because, and the NBA as well in particular, is because they know that if they don't fulfil the TV contracts, that they're going to be millions of pounds in the red. And many of those millions of pounds will already have been spent. Yeah. So that's why they're playing. Um, if they didn't have those TV contracts, um, then I'm not sure they would be playing. But they do. Now, we don't have any. That's the thing. We don't have any TV money. To uh, we got, I think we have a deal with Perform, I think, which... Um, we had to play the one of the reasons why the trophy final was probably played because to, to, to deal with that, but but we don't have anything outstanding in relation to liability, and and that means um, that we, we basically only spend what we get. Yeah, and, you know we kind of zero zero some point, and so I wouldn't see an issue. I mean the the, the knock on issue would be possibly lots of lots of club sponsors and stuff like that. That would be stuff you'd have to deal with on a local level. Um, but basketball is, in this country, is one of the things it's knocked for is that, you know, there's an insecurity of employment, etc., and insecurity of teams. But it's a massive uh, economic advantage that we get to redraw our salary, we get to redraw our playing budget every year. Mm. You know, and, and it's a advantage in relation to business continuity. So... Um, if you write the contracts the right way, and, and, and then you're only looking at you know backup staffs of a few people um, who hopefully can be kept going, um, and potentially if we can get some TV income from games, it'd be even better. Gonna, but the, the reality I... is that sports are funded. Sorry, sports are funded three ways: TV income, um, governing body income, and um, local club income. Yeah. And we and um, governing body income is, for instance, like Wimbledon for tennis. Or the Lord's Test match for the cricket, they get that money gets dispersed to the counties, or, or the England matches through the FA. Um, TV income is TV income, prize money is prize money, and then it's local. Clubs. And our economy is based entirely on what we generate. But we don't. But hopefully the clubs are sensible enough now that you're not spending what you don't generate. How important do you think a TV deal is for the future success of the league and the visibility of the league and growing and the growth of the sport? I guess in the country. I've really kind of vacillated on this over the years. At the times I thought it was really absolutely critical. Um, and and, and I, I, I've never been more excited than on Monday night gone when my name popped up on Sky Sports News, by the way, as having left the Eagles. On the ticket at the bottom, I've never seen I, I literally jumped 12. I got a text. I, I spent 45 minutes watching the ticket to see my name come up and took a screenshot. So... <laughs> From that perspective, if, that, if that's me just seeing my name on the screen, imagine what it does to players and fans to see their the games on the telly and all of that. Um, I, I think the reason I'm, I vacillated on the reason I'm, I'm not sure is because ultimately the, the numbers aren't great. You know, the, it, the imp- it gives off a fantastic impression mm-hmm. if it's done properly. And one of the things you've had a, a be in your bonnet about quite properly is the quality of the footage, which is you're absolutely 100% right on because of the impression it gives off. Uh, I'm also, on the other hand of it, 
versed in the business side of it, which says that even when it's on, not that many people watch. You know, and, and does it, you know, and, and, and it's a sort of all cost benefit. And I suppose, I think my view is I would, I think on a balance, we need to be on the TV. We need to be on preferably Sky Sports because ultimately that's what sports is now. Sky Sports or BT Sports because, you know, you don't get sports on BBC One, BBC Two with any degree of uh, any type of sport. Um, we need to have that foothold on there to give us a little bit of credibility with sponsors. It's not an easy foothold to gain. Ice hockey's never had it either. And ice hockey's a comparable sport, but played in a bigger arena with more people. So it's not easy. But I'm confident that the product we have is really good enough to actually warrant this. And I'm kind of frustrated that some of the players that we've had in our league over the years haven't attained the degree of um, notoriety or knowledge or haven't had any buzz around them. There's yet another counter-argument to that, and this is me being a lawyer, stacking up the arguments one side or the other. The other counter-argument to that is, is it TV or is it, or is it that what we need to do is to build better narratives on digital media in relation to discussion programs, in relation to analysis programs. You see all this stuff that's come out during the lockdown. There are a lot of people who have legitimate viewpoints and can educate because the biggest thing about basketball in this country and the development of it is that there are no educators visible. Mm. You know, you don't you didn't you don't have Alan Shearer or whoever it is on explaining what's happened. You don't we, we, we have to wait till four o'clock in the morning to watch Shaq and Charles and Kenny Smith giggling on about something or other in kind of a way. But even then we don't see the we don't see the build up pro, we don't see the build up, we don't see much of the see a little bit of telestrator, that's it. Mm. You've got to be really keen to look at it. So we don't build up narratives around players. And obviously, to be fair, the BBL, just before we stopped for COVID, they got um, Selena Conroy in, who's now, for the first time, they've got somebody who's in charge of that. Yeah. So the argument to say that, in many ways, in catering to your own audience, is even more important than the, than the Sky Sports stuff. But from everybody prefers it. Everybody has the impression of it being great if it's on telly. And my view is that is probably worth something. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, sort of... Tough one though. You you probably know more about it than me. Uh, so uh, we're gonna we're gonna wrap up, but just some some I guess some quicker questions uh, to wrap up with. Looking back on on your time uh, on the sidelines, uh, starting with uh, the sort of standout memories. Like, what are your standout memories um, from your time as an assistant coach with the Eagles? Win a game in Glasgow um, when Fab was in hospital with bacteria and pneumonia, and we didn't know if he was gonna live or die. Uh, and Joe Chapman, we literally, we, you know, we, we, we've been using hospital and infectious diseases wards in the RVI for 12 days and um, struggling to breathe halfway through the season. And then we um, played Cheshire on the Friday night with seven players and Joe Chapman tore his Achilles in the middle of the court at Sports Central without anybody being anywhere near him. And then we went to Glasgow, who hated us, and they were top of the league and we were second. And we went there with five players and Andre Lockhart and Aaron Nielsen. And um, we were 15 points down, and Trey Moore and Charles Smith come back and won the game. And I've never been um, that was I've never been as high in my life. That, that must have been what drugs was like because for 15, you know, it was just like just just 
that was that was 2010 2011 so I was about a year in then winning stuff um the first final at the O2 you know I'm on the floor in, you know in my suit at the O2 my mum and dad are in the crowd and 15,000 people watching me on my on the sidelines of the basketball game that's like crazy um the game at the arena where we beat Plymouth to win the trophy, the only two-legged trophy ever, um, was uh, not the arena, at Sports Central, was as loud as it's ever been. It was packed. You know, at that point in time, you could not say that, you know, people don't get, this is, a, this is the thing, it wasn't even on telly, so you don't know. Um, but the night that it was, um, you couldn't say that was anything other than, you know, prime sporting theatre. We were down nine points after the first leg and we came back and won by 12 or 14. And finally, probably the, the opening of the arena. Um, that, that first night, even though we lost, um, it was a point. And it happened to, we talked about it afterwards with all of, with the kind of guys who've been around for a long time. Um, but it was a point for me. It was about three minutes before the tip-off, when they, when all the seats were full, when people had all streamed. Because we had like every every dignitary in the northeast was there. There was like three hundred people in the in the corporate area, and they all came tumbling down. And it was on and. I just looked around and the lights, the lighting's really good in the arena, so the lights were, were off over the crowd and, and it just, it had a little tear. Just a little one. Like, Jesus, we did it. Uh, and I know that speaking to other people afterwards, they had the same thing, albeit at different times of the night. It was just a moment where you just look around and think, well, I've been involved in basketball in the Northeast for like 33 years since I went to Gates at Leisure Centre to watch Gates at Vikings or McEwen's Tyneside when I was 11. And look at what we've managed to accomplish. You know, that was that was as special as it gets. Outside of that, it's just lots and lots of trips up and down the motorway with Fab. Because what happened is when we're on the bus, the team sits at the back and me and him and Eric, the team manager, and latterly Ian as well, we're at the front. So we get to whisper and every so often we get to shout one of the players back to the, down the front of the bus to tell them what they're doing wrong. And it's just, you know, just constantly talking about basketball, reviewing the game, working out why, why decisions were made, kind of the science of it all, figuring, just kind of trying to figure out the world. That was it. That was thoroughly entertaining. And that's something I'll always, you know, you, you, you build a camaraderie that you really enjoy. Sorry, there's about five answers. <laughs> the, the best player that you've coached? Ooh, that's harsh. Um... Best or most talented? Um, oh goodness! Um, if I was sitting, the very, very most talented player that we had at the Eagles, I think it was probably Jay Sean Page. I think Jay Sean was probably more talented than any any in relation to talent. He had in his little finger. Anybody else? In relation to best players, um, I don't really coach Drew Sullivan, so Drew doesn't count. Because I only he was with us for about three months, so I wouldn't think that I wouldn't be fair to include Drew. Obviously, he's incredibly talented. Um, and it's probably has to, it has to be Charles. I think probably has to be Charles Smith. I mean, Charles is just um, that's best in relation to pure talent. Charles and Fab, when they played, were like the the, the absolute perfect combination for Fab would defend anybody and throw the ball to Charles wherever Charles wanted it, and Charles would score. You know, and, and we won 15, we won 20 trophies off the back of it. But Charles's ability to, to come in the big games um, and make play after play when it mattered. And that he had a cussedness about him where he said, at times we're not just not going to lose. 
Um, I think he would probably be the one. But it's hard because, I mean, Fletcher's awesome, you know. <laughs> Fletcher four years old. And, and Darius's, and Darius's um, commitment and stability and stickability is incredible as well. So they all brought different things, but best best on a pure talent and willfulness level, I think, Charles. Uh, the best player that you've seen in the BBL, not necessarily from the Eagles, but in the league in your time? In my, well, in my time on the bench or in my time in history? Let's, let's do both. Let's, let's, do his, let's do history. Start with history and then, and then do your time on the bench. The best player, um, most talented, the best player was probably either Amici or Maya given what they accomplished. So John Amici obviously was at Sheffield for a year. Yeah. And Lauren Meyer was at Cheshire for a year. And Lauren Meyer was an NBA player, basically a year, a year out of the NBA. So he wasn't a washed-up NBA player. He was a proper NBA player. Um, but they were, only there for, they were only there for a year. So, you know, if I'm talking about the greatest players in BBL history, I think probably Nigel. Um, <clears throat> Nigel, for the years that he did, Scant leads the league in scoring in history, 8,500 points. You know, you can't, if you look at career stats, um, I have to put Fab in there because he leads the league in assists, blocks, steals, and fouls. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and played for 22 years and won so much and, and, and made so many winning plays, even though he didn't make winning plays in the way that people normally see them. Um, and obviously, slightly before my time is Alton Bird and, and Alan Cunningham. You know, they're slightly before my time because basketball in the north we weren't very good, so we didn't see very much of them um, up in the northeast. So I didn't really, see, and they weren't really on telly, so I didn't really see that much. Um, there was a guy in the north, Russ Saunders, who was incredible. I watched growing up at Sunderland; he was incredible. He scored thirty a game just without trying. Um, but that's probably about it. I think, and then the ones I've coached since I've coached in the last ten years, probably Charles or Drew, Charles Smith or Drew Sullivan. I wouldn't, I would never. You see, I watched so many, I played, I coached so many games. I was involved with so many games where either Charles won the game or Drew won the game by making the right play at the right time, often against each other. So Charles won the last one, so Drew's going to win the next one. You know, something like that. Um, that I just can't separate them. You know, because every time I think, well, Drew won that. Drew played, made those plays. I think, oh, well, Charles made those plays. So I, I can't separate them. And I'm a great fan of uh, winning players, not not just players who come and score 25 a night. You know, you have to. It's it's how you perform in the biggest moments that matters. And then finally, give us your predictions on paper for the coming BBL season. How do you see it playing out? Yeah, well, obviously the Eagles will win because I'm still Max's friend. Um, oh, that's true. Well, London, I mean, London have an incredible, uh, incredible roster, um, which I think is basically. Uh, I've been back in my head, and I can't even contemplate it being like any roster I've ever seen in the league, even going back 30 years. I don't remember any team having 15 players or 14 players of that level, ever, um, ever. Even in the teams that won everything, all in, in the, back in the old days, um, you know, Kingston, Guildford, they had like nine, eight, nine players. They just had the best eight, nine players. Maybe Brighton Bears, maybe Brighton when Nick was Nick was trying to take over Europe. They had a lot of talent. One of those years, I think, when he had a European competition at U Cup level. 
um, and he was signing players left, right, and centre. So, you know, you'd have to look at it and think, well, you know, either someone has to beat London or they're going to beat themselves um, with the amount of players that they've got. Um, and you can never know when you've got that many new personalities in the team, you never know how it's going to mesh. And only five can play at any one time. But if you're looking at it on a logical level, over the basis of a kind of a lengthy season, you know, on a talent level, you'd say that they were the prohibitive favourites. Um, Rob, Rob, Rob's got a good squad, as ever. Um, he's got his young British kids aren't young anymore and they know how to win. That's a big thing. He found um, a good, um, as you would call it, plastic Brit shooter last year in Corey Johnson, um, who really helped him at the end of last year. He's got, he's got another plastic Brit centre in Mo Walker, um, who's coming off a year off and very talented. Um, and we got four Americans as well. So, and he'll have good Americans. So, and they'll be ready to play. And they'll be competitive. And, and it's a change because, I mean, I talked about this with Rob many a time as we were playing Leicester through the 19, through, through the decade, you know, how the, the change in a team's, in, in, in almost an organisation's mentality from when you're the chaser to when you're the chased. So, you know, we were, Leicester were always chasing us until probably about 2015, 2016. They were always putting teams together to beat us which was absolutely the right thing to do because we were on the top and then they got there and they beat us and uh, and then they had a year or two of where they were better than us and um, Rob I think then appreciated understood then the difference because teams are suddenly coming after you the target is on your back and it was like man you guys had this for so many years people just don't know what it's like you know and, and he's right you know, they don't. It's it's, no, it's the easiest thing in the world is to put together a team to win for a year. The hardest thing in the world is to do it year after year after year when everybody's coming after you. And now, that's London now. So Leicester are now the chaser. And they're now chasing London because everybody's hearing about London's team. And that will be an interesting dynamic. I think we're under the radar a little bit. But, you know, we have, you know, I think we've recruited pretty well. I've seen the guys practice and I think we're, 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 we're pretty solid. Um, I think Cortez Edwards is a you know very very solid player, and the two American guys that we've signed, two big guys we've signed, are, are, are really going to be good in the league. So I wouldn't um, say uh, wouldn't push us down there. And after that, you know everybody's everybody's kind of sort of worked out recruitment over the past two or three years. Recruitment in the league has got a hundred times better than it was eight or nine years ago. You know, a hundred times better. Everybody is now pretty solid, and that's. Even, you know, look at the guy at Manchester didn't win a game last year. Danny's recruited really well this year. He's got, he's got a proper squad there. So when there's a league with only 11 teams in and nobody's, and nobody's the whipping boy, if I can put it that way, that makes for a pretty exciting league. Mm. And um, obviously you've got the, even the lad, the guys down at Plymouth, PJ, and the money that's coming at Plymouth there as well. You know, you know no one likes going down at Plymouth. Nobody. It's miles and miles and miles away from Bristol. It's further away from Birmingham. It's a hell of a lot further away from Newcastle. You know, so, you know, nine hours on a bus on a Saturday, then getting out of bed and playing on the hard floor at three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon um, is not popular with anybody. And they're going to be an absolute beast. And, even, and then, you know, Prion and, and Rashad Hassan and Lavelle Cook and Theo and those guys in that gym, we've never won an easy game in that gym ever. You know, even when you've walked in thinking we've got enough talent to win by 20, we don't. You know, so... I just think it'd be really exciting league to, to watch on from afar, or not that far, but watch on from reasonably close to, keeping a, keeping a close eye on. 
uh, and kind of reposition myself as kind of a, 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 a loudmouth know-it-all pundit again. It would be kind of fun. Perfect. That's a, a perfect place to leave it. Uh, hopefully the coronavirus doesn't put a stop to the season and we get to see it played through. Um, but yeah, Dave, thank you so much. Thanks for your service over the last 10 years on the sidelines and uh, all the insight into British basketball, this little conversation we've had, uh, I greatly appreciate it. It's been very helpful for sort of my bigger picture of the whole game as well. And uh, all the best uh, with the with the next steps. Top man, thank you. Psst. Hey, podcast listener. But you weren't expecting to hear from me again. Now that you've listened to the show, please take two seconds to take your podcast player out of your pocket and give us a rating and review on iTunes. It would be massively appreciated and goes a long way in helping us spread this content far and wide. Literally take your phone out of your pocket right now. Uh, open up your podcast player. Go to the Hoops Fix podcast. You'll see the option to leave a rating and review. Drop us a five star if you love it. And uh, if you could take two seconds just to write a review as well, it would be massively, massively appreciated. Thank you and speak to you next week. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.